Okay, so uh, let's get a uh, quick review and caught up. Um, I wanted to, um, I, was, I listened to last week's teaching in um, Holden. I'm going to find him real quick. He asked a question last week. Are you joining us? All right, I have a, okay, the, never mind then. No, that's all right. I just had an answer to your question that you asked last week on the tape. No, no, we'll get to do what you got to do. So, um, but we'll, what we'll do is we'll do a review quickly because uh, we are now into the eighth seal. I'm sorry, the seventh seal, <laughs> chapter eight. Um, and we're going to cover five verses today uh, because they're very significant and they tie back and forth to some of the things, or a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Um, let me get rid of some of this stuff here. Just because next week, what we're going to do is we're going to have a quiz on that chart. There we are. We're going to fill in the blanks just because I want you guys to have a, a conversant um, knowledge of what we've been talking about. So last week, the question was asked and, and uh, as to are there Old Testament reference for the sealing of this uh, 144,000, and there are. Um, and there are two that we sp speak of most of the time. The first one is in Ezekiel 1 through 9, um, where the angels come together in the city of Jerusalem, and, and uh, the Lord tells them, I want you to mark all the people that in the city that have not bowed down to idolatry. And then the angel comes from the altar of heaven and casts coals over the city. And then the angels, several of them, I can't remember the exact count, go through and execute those that have not been sealed. Okay, again, that is Ezekiel 9, 1 through 6. That is a very, very significant story back to the sealing of the 144,000. The other one that is most commonly used with regards to the sealing of the 144,000 is Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where the seal, the door, the, the blood on the lintels and the doorposts uh, were the seal and the angel passed over them. Both of those have to do with the, the, the idea of um, sealing or pre preserving the church. Okay, so those are two Old Testament reference. Um, both of them protected the people of God from the impending judgment. So those are your reference for the seal. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to draw a box around the church. And I'm going to write chapter 7, sealed. Okay? So even though the church is in the midst of what's going on, um, they are protected and sealed from the judgments of God. Now, where do we see a picture of that in the Old Testament? You might think of one off the top of your head. Egypt. I will make a distinction between them and you. Thus saith the Lord. So, and that is also another way of sealing that the Lord has made a distinction. And I think Rick said it last week, make sure that you keep in your mind that it is, it is God's truth to the counterfeit of the beast's marking. This thing all over my head. Okay? So the mark of the beast is the counterfeit, but understand this, it's not a physical mark. So you guys were taught last week, so let's do an overview real quick. Chapter 1, it's really good to keep going on this because... What we're going to see is, uh, now we're going to start seeing a lot of recapitulation. And when we start dealing with the trumpets, which is next week, there is a chronology that's involved, but there's not. And this is going to probably cause some, some of you to have scratch your head a little bit. When we do things in the natural, like if I walk and while I'm talking, there's a chronology to what I'm doing. I'm taking one step and I'm putting it before the next. However, in the grand scheme of things, you can say I'm walking. And that kind of coalesces all the steps that I make into a single thing. This is the way it is with what's going on here. Jesus opens the scrolls 
opens the scroll and we see it because of the way it's written as this pops open and then everybody stands around and waits until the thing happens. And then the next one's broken and we all stand. So we look at, at these items as if there was a time interval. I see it as Jesus stepping forward with the scroll in hand and breaking all se seven seals all at the same time and opening the scroll so that there's a consecutive activity that goes on. Almost something that you cannot perceive a time gap in. Yes, the seals come first, but so quickly that the judgments and the bowls, which by the way, the trumpets and the bowls, which have pretty cool reference, actually correspond now with the seals because the seals provide the environment into which the, the, the trumpets and bowls are poured. And So we're going to get to that today. So real quick review, chapter one, what's chapter one about? G Jesus among the lampstands. I am the first, the last. He is seen in a glorious new creation body. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's good. Um, he, he declares himself to be the first, the last, the living one who was dead and is, now alive, and is now alive forever and ever and holds the keys of death and Hades. Those are all key things to the book of Revelation. And he is standing in the midst of the lampstands as Lord of the lamp, as Lord of the church. Chapters two and three. The churches, seven churches. What's the theme of the seven churches? Jesus. <laughs> that is true. Church throughout the church age. Why seven? What's going on with the seven? I mean, why is there differences between the seven, or is there a constant? a constant character about all of them? Or are they different? Why? Yeah, and they represent the different struggles and the different things that the church will go through and be confronted with throughout the church age. And Jesus has an answer, a affirmation, a, um, that's what I'm looking for, Correction, a promise, and ends every one of them with him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So it's parabolic, okay? Um, chapter 4, what do we have? Throne room. What's significant about the throne room with regards to the book of Revelation? Sovereignty of God over... All of creation. So there's hope. So chapter one, a message of hope. He who is dead is now alive and holds the keys of death and hell, which is really important when you come to this particular one. The seals, especially four and five. Okay? Number two, hope. What's, where's the hope in there for the, 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 the church? That although we're overcomers, and we're guaranteed that overcoming, and that no matter what situation, God is involved. Jesus is still Lord of the lampstands, no matter what the circumstance. Okay? Number three, uh, chapter, chapter four, what's the message of hope? Why does God show himself sovereign over all of creation? So we have hope. Hope in what? Okay, Christ. <laughs> Hope in God's sovereignty over the affairs of men, as is one of the major themes of Daniel. Okay? So that no matter what goes on out there, we understand that it's by God's design, for God's purposes, to accomplish His goals. And we very rarely ever consider the things that are going on, say, in Washington, D.C., and in L.A., and around the world, as being God's intended design. God's purpose for His redemption. For His plan of redemption. So very rarely do we look at uh, the Syrian conflict as being God's sovereign ordination to bring about His plan of, of new creation. Rarely do we think that. We actually come at it from a different angle. We say, Lucifer is running amok. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Instead, what these passages are designed to do is make us come to the other side and say, this is God's plan 
This is God working out the scroll that he has opened and we are protected in the midst of it because he is sovereign over creation. Does that make sense? All right. Number, uh, chapter 5. What's chapter 5? So it's a, I don't like the chapter break because it's a single vision. It's a vision of the throne room. But now all of a sudden you have what? The lamb who was slain. So now you have interjected into the Lord of creation the, the means by which God has ordained the redemption of that creation in the incarnate second person of the Trinity, of the Son, okay? He does what? Takes the scroll and opens the scroll. So what we have now is we have released upon the earth all kinds of judgments from God, but they are toward His eternal purpose of redeeming and making new His creation. That's what all of the preliminary is about. Chapter 6, the seals of the scrolls are broken. Seals 1 through 4 release what? Four horsemen. What do those represent? Yep. Famine and death. And all the things that we see, right? So we see political, military, strife and murder, famine and disparity, and death and pestilence. All the things that are very, very characteristic of the society that we're living in, right? Right, And it goes back all the way to when? When the moment that the seals were broken, which happened when? That's right. So we see evidence of the four horsemen and the political structure that's going on even back as far as the first century when, when Paul wrote the letters to the churches because you can go through and find where those things are actually happening, right? All right, so um, seal five shows the state of the believers who died during seal five. So although those who were of the earth, which is a key statement in Revelations, which means people who have made their home in the society of the dragon or the systems of the beast, death in Hades, but those that, are, that died during this time who were sealed of God are found under the throne room for to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Seal 6, what do we talk about seal 6? It's the end of the age and it is a depiction of the end of the age and what we're going about to see is that seal 7 actually is the buddy or the parallel or the interlocking uh, component to seal 6. But it also has a segue, and there's a lot of debate as to what the seventh seal actually opens. Um, but we'll talk about that today. Seal 6 corresponds, the end of the age. We'll see it again several places throughout Revelation, which really, really points to the uh, recapitulation theory, or the uh, recapitulation interpretation. There's earthquakes, there are all these things, and they recur. I think there's 11 times that the word earthquake is used in Revelation, I think. But the, the, what it happens in seal 6 is also manifest in, in trumpet 7 and bowl 7. Okay? All right, Rick taught last week on what? Who are the 144,000? The complete number of what? Of the redeemed. What does it span? The entire, well, it spans even more than that. Spans the entire redemptive history. Why? The numbers are important. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Old Testament, New Testament. Twelve times twelve is 144, right? So completion, completion. Completion, Old Testament, completion, New Testament. What does the ten represent? Anybody know? Ten, ten in Scripture represents multitude. So you have 12 times 12 times 10. Is it 1,000? 12 times 12 times 1,000. So multitude. Okay? So what you have is completion, completion, multitude. And then what you see at the second part of chapter 7 is what? An uncounted multitude standing before the throne, right? 
Now this goes back, this also is seen in several other places, but specifically in chapters 21, where the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And if you do the math on the New Jerusalem, you end up with like numbers. Now, I'm not going to say exact numbers, but you end up with like numbers. It's a, it's a cube that comes down out of heaven with three, three, and three, 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 three times four all around it with the 12 and the 12 as the foundations and the, and the gates. So, uh, and then you have to add into the stadia uh, the length, width, and height, and then you come up with roughly the same thing. So, the bottom line is, is that no matter what goes on in all of this, the church is sealed. So that when the, the believers who die in this, in, during the church age are now under the altar. And we're going to hear from them again in this chapter, in this little verse here, and this is why this is important. Okay, you guys, are we caught up? Any questions on that? That was a real quick overview. We good? All right. Chapters 8, or chapter 8, 1 through 5. Who wants to read it really fast for me? So we have a microphone. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Boom. Again, we have an earthquake. So... That leads naturally to a connection between seal 6, and we're going to put seal 7 up here. Okay? Yeah. All right. So the picture is this. Open the scroll, silence in heaven for a th roughly 30 minutes. Right? And then John sees seven angels with trumpet trumpets, and then he sees, and they don't do anything. And then another angel appears, moves to the altar before him who sits on the throne with the censer, golden censer, which goes back to the Old Testament uh, idea of the altar of incense. He's given much incense, and he takes coals from the altar and puts it in the incense so that the prayer, and mingles it with the prayers of the saints. Interesting. Does that sound like seal five? It does, and that's important. Seal 5. Then after the, the prayers of the saints are received before the, him who sits on the throne, the angel takes the censer or the coals, depending on how you read the Greek, and hurls it downward to the earth. And upon its throwing, we have the same imagery that we had in Seal 6. Okay, So there's your picture. Now, it would be natural to expect that the breaking of the seventh seal, because it follows the sixth, which depicts the end of the age, would, in fact, depict the new creation. And, in fact, many commentators say it does. Because the, there is a debate as to what actually the seventh seal contains or looses. Many people stop with the silence. And they say that the silence represents the new creation. It's ineffable, so John didn't even try to describe it. That's, what, that's their thinking. There are other thoughts. I don't hold to that. Um, have we, as we have consistently stated, the seals themselves do not con contain the content of the scroll. This is important. The seals, what do they do? What do the seals reveal? What, what, what can't you do until all the seals are broken? You can't open the scroll, which means that what is happening by the breaking of the seals is either, it has to be preparatory to the revelation of what's in the scroll, right? I mean, 
You have a book like my Bible that has a, a wrap around it. I can't open the book and read the content until I pull off the strap and then read it, right? Then I can open it and read it. So there is some logical concept that we, want, we must apply to the, the visions that are being seen. The, that content, it, like I said, can only be re, uh, revealed once the, six, the seven seals are broken. Thus, it has been our contention that the breaking of the seals set the general conditions of the interadvental inter age into which the contents of the scroll itself are read. Okay? Um, and we've already gone through that, seals one through three and what they all depict. Um, the interludes, now, I'm, I was, I was going to get into that. True Israel. The seventh seal, when broken, concludes the prefacing general character of the interadvental period into which the contents of the scroll can be released. Several things then should be noted in advance. First of all, um, I'm going to do seal seven plus seal six here, okay? Because the two go together. Once the seal is broken, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. This could be seen as almost a natural break between the preliminary breaking of the seals and the actual content of the scroll itself. And I actually see it as that. Okay? What the, the silence in heaven for about a half an hour could be seen as almost a literary, a literary natural break between the breaking of the seventh seal before the trumpets blow. And I actually see it in that capacity. So there is a natural breaking between the seven seals and the trumpets, and that is silence. And we're going to see why that's important here in a second. Okay, so before the seven trumpets are blown, there's a silence in heaven. So it constitutes in the literary structure of Revelation a natural breaking point between the two. The seventh seal releases the seven trumpets, but they are not the content of the seventh seal. Don't get that mixed up. And the reason that I said that is because the seven trumpets actually have to do with content of the scroll. The seventh seal has to be broken before the content can be read. All right? And finally, as is evidenced in, the, in these verses, the answer to the question repeatedly asked by the martyrs under the altar in seal five is now inaugurated. This is important. Remember what the prayer, the prayer of the saints in chapter in seal five was. What what was it? How long, O Lord? Until what? Until you, yeah, avenge or bring justice to the earth, right? And seal seven shows you the beginning of the answer to that prayer. All right. So, those are things that you need to keep going. All right. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, some suggest that the content of the seal is the silence only. This is important. And thereby depicts the new creation which cannot be described, as I've already said. Um, the, mention of the, seven, the, the mention of the seven angels in verse 2 actually inaugurates the contents of the scroll and starts a new section of the book. This interpretation includes the angel throwing the censer to the earth as part of the trumpet judgment. So, there are those that suggest that the seventh seal is only silence. That it's only the silence and that's it. Okay? And then they apply what happens after that. What we read, the seven, then they take the seven angels standing ready with the trumpets as the beginning of the new uh, of the, 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 the scroll and what's contained in it as a new section. However, here's what I, I'll just tell you what I think and what I've come to understand. Verse 2 in this set of scriptures is actually another interlude. It's a literary bridge. John does this throughout Revelation. We already saw it with chapter 7. 
It's, it is a, an interruption in the flow of things. John is moving along and he's saying the fifth seal broke, the sixth seal broke, but then I looked and I saw a great multitude in heaven, 144,000. And then the seventh seal broke. He does this repeatedly. It happens again with the trumpets. As a matter of fact, the sixth trumpet will blow and then there's a, another interlude. And here we have an interlude. What we have is the silence. Then John sees seven angels who are made ready, but wait, before they can blow their trumpets, one more thing must happen. And the reason that I say that is because when the end of, this, when the end of these verses are read, chapter, verse 5, what happened? The angel throws the censer to the earth, and what occurs? The exact same thing as seal 6. So I equate the end of chapter 5 of that section of verse 5 with what happened previously in chapter 6. So I make a connection between the 7th and 6th seal. Now, I didn't just come up with this. Smalley, Beal, uh, and several others hold to this particular position. Okay? All right. Others argue that this silence means that the seal has no content. This allows for the suggestion that, that the following trumpets are, in fact, its content. So there are those who suggest this, that the seventh seal, when it's broken, actually contains the seven trumpets. And then they go further and say when the seventh trumpet blows, its actual content is the seven bowls. And they create a linear aspect to it. Okay? I don't believe that the seven trumpets are, in fact, the content of the seventh seal. Because if you're going to do that, then what you must say that the, seventh, the content of the seventh seal is, in fact, the entire scroll. All right? Uh, according to our understanding, the trumpets and the bowls are part of the content of the scroll itself released by the breaking of the seventh seal and not just the seventh, breaking of all the seals and not just the seventh one. In other words, the content of the scroll as depicted in part by the trumpets and the bowls is not to be directly equated to the seventh seal, but to all of them. All of them had to be broken, all right? Um, therefore, we should understand the seventh seal to be directly associated with the sixth seal. Whereas the first five seals depict the character of the church age, the last two deal with its final judgment. As such, as we have stated, they are God's response to the prayers of the saints in 6.10. Okay? Questions on that? So, let me sur summarize what I've just said. There are three interpretations of what the contents of the seventh scroll are. One, silence. Two, nothing. No. That's like silence and nothing. You could say that. Let's just do. For, for easy note taking. The first is silence or nothing. The second would be then the seven trumpets. The third is that the seal contains the prayers of the saints being thrown to the earth and is directly related to the sixth seal and showing the end of the age. The third one is the one that I hold to. Rick. I, I can see why um, possibly that Silence could be depicted as the new creation because it sounds almost like the Sabbath rest. That's, what, that's the argument. Yeah, because of it being the seventh silence rest that mm -hmm. God had then, that's God's entered into his, we've entered into the rest of God in completion. Yeah. Now, the only, the, one of the most significant arguments that I've, that I've come across that contradicts that concept is, is this. It's twofold. One, silence is never equated with rest in Scripture. There is no equation of silence with rest. Rest is not necessarily by definition the absence of sound. Two, 
to verify what I just said in point one, if you look at what goes on in heaven throughout up to this point, you see a lot of noise. You see angels that continually cry, holy, holy, holy. You see elders that continually fall before the throne room saying, you are worthy. You see the multitude singing a new song when the, when the, when the, uh, uh, the lamb approaches the throne. You see choruses and praises in heaven that go on unceasingly. That is not silence. That's almost a tumult of praise that continually goes on through. So the new creation is probably not going to be something where there's an absence of sound. Yeah. No, no, I hear you. This is the argument against that. I'm not saying, because that's a very common argument, is to say that this is the new creation. However, most scholars, a lot of scholars, I won't say most, a lot of scholars will suggest that silence is never equated with the new creation. It's never suggested that, uh, and it's not even used as a depiction of the new creation. There's no Old Testament or New Testament referent to support that interpretation. There is, however, a referent for this. That the silence in heaven is, is the awe of heaven at what's about to happen. And that has Old Testament reference in Zechariah and in, in, in some scriptures here. I don't have them off the top of my head, but we'll get there. The Old Testament associates silence with divine judgment. All right. Remember, we always have to interpret the imagery of, the, of Revelation with the Scriptures because Revelation is the capstone of redemption. It shows the full breadth of what God is doing. All the way from the time of the incarnation where the Lamb stands before the, the throne room with what God's doing to the, with the churches to His response to the prayers of the saints to His final judgment on, on, the, on the nations and his preservation of the church. All of this has an Old Testament reference because all, everything that goes on in the book of Revelation is the, the summation of what we've read up to that point. So if there is a depiction of silence in heaven, we have to have a referent. We have to have something that says, oh, this is what this is. Otherwise, what we do is we begin to stand over here and say, oh, I think this means this, without any support. And we do the exact same thing, and I'm just going to say it right out. We do the exact same thing that the premillennial dispensationalists do. They take various imagery, and they hold it out, and they do that with this chapter 7, where they say that the elect is only used for the children of Israel. That because the church is never mentioned after chapter 3, that everything after that point, when it's a reference to the elect, must refer to Israel. That's reading into the Scripture. Because the church is called the elect. So you have a conundrum with that interpretation. So... Rick just brought up a good point. I am not contradicting what Rick says because Rick didn't say, I think it's silence. What he said was there are those that could, he could see how it would be equated with that. However, if we take silence and we just take it out of the context from the rest of Scripture and say it's the new creation, we run into a problem because there is silence in heaven reported throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Minor Prophets, which is important because it's apocalyptic literature. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so in the following passages, God is... Judgment. I always find these typos. Judgment. Let me fix that. Judgment. All right. The Old Testament associates silence with divine judgment. In the following passages, God is in His temple as He is here in chapter 8 and about to execute judgment. Habakkuk 2.20 2, through 3.15. The Lord is in His holy temple. This is 2.20, just before there's an execution of judgment. The Lord is in His temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Zechariah 2.13-3.2. What is the scripture? Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because He has roused Himself from His holy tabernacle. Be silent. Stand in awe. 
The Lord's wrath is about to be executed. His judgments are about to be made known. Stand in awe. Stand silently and see the, see the work of the Lord. What's about to happen here? The seven trumpets are about to blow. There's silence in heaven. Stand silently because you're about to see the execution of the judgments of God. It is an awful and fearful thing. Who wrote, who wrote the, 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 who delivered the message, sinners in the hand, hands of an angry God? Jonathan Edwards. We lose that fear of the Lord so easily, especially in our culture. God's our buddy. Jesus is our friend. Yeah. But he walks among the lampstands with feet of bronze, and he corrects where it's necessary. And his word is a sharp two-edged sword. And he will execute vengeance for the saints. He is a lion. And we have to keep that in mind. Okay, In Zephaniah 1, 17-18, silence is commanded in connection with the great day of the Lord and of His judgments. So we have Old Testament reference for understanding that the silence in heaven is a hush that falls over all of creation because of the awesomeness and the fearfulness of, about, of what's about to happen. And to, to summarize, one author says, the thought of the final judgment of God then is so dreadful that all of creation falls utterly silent in anticipation of it. All right? What did, what did Isaiah do when he came into, absolute, when he, when he entered the throne? He was silent. Clapped his hands over his mouth. So there's, there's this idea of awe and reverence and oh my goodness. For about a half an hour, hour, hour is often used in Revelation to refer to the suddenness of the time of judgment of the wicked. Okay? So an hour. So hour represents the hour has come. The hour is upon us. It means the suddenness of the judgments of God. We see that in 3.3, 3, 11.13, 14.7, and 18.10. Anybody want me to repeat those? Okay. 3 3, 11 13, 14 7, and 18 10. Half is associated with the times of crisis and judgment in several places in Daniel, which is directly linked to the 42 months period of Revelation. Times, times, and a half. Okay? So, here's the crux on this. The, the phrase half hour does not actually refer to a specific time period, but should be understood as symbolic, symbolically emphasizing the suddenness and unexpectedness of the, decree, uh, the decree of God's judgment. What does it say? They will be caught unaware. For as in the days of Noah. Right? What are men doing? What, what does the, uh, the, the latter part of Matthew 24 in, depict? Or is it 25? It's 25. Two will be in a field. One got taken, the other left. Right? Suddenness. So the half hour represents the suddenness at which God will execute His judgment. It is a half hour of awe in the expectation of God's swift and sudden judgment. That's the picture that's being painted in, chapter, in verse 1. Okay? Everybody got that? Any questions? No? Okay. Verse 2, seven angels. Who are the seven angels? Does it matter? Yeah, it does. Notice the, and I think it's article. I'm not really good with... with uh, parts of speech, but the word the, is that an article? It's a definitive article. It's the seven angels, not just any random seven angels. All right? The definite article here shows that specific angels are in mind. Some commentators who hold to the idea of the angels of the seven chur <coughs> churches are in fact angels hold that these seven angels are the seven chur church angels previously mentioned. I don't hold to the fact that those are angels. Because they're rebuked. And that just seems weird to me that an angel who does exactly what the Lord commands 
in heaven without wavering and without con con cont contesting is rebuked for not doing something. So I've always understood that the seven angels uh, or the seven churches represent the heavenly, uh, the heavenly representation of the earthly church. So I don't hold to this idea that these seven angels are the seven angels of Revelation 1. Others agree with the Jewish writings which speak of the seven who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory, and, uh, of, the glory of the Holy One. And these seven angels are in fact the seven archangels. And we, you almost have to go back to Jewish literature to get this, especially Tobit. The best, it, 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 so, and they're actually named. All right? Uriel, Raphael, uh, Raguel, Michael, Seraquel, Gabriel, and Remiel are the seven archangels. So they, these, are, these are not to be trifled with. So we've always understood in angelology that there is a gradation of angels, that there are, there are different angels. I mean, the seraphim are awesome, right? But you don't hear of seraphim any other place. But what you do is you hear of seraphim, you hear of cherubim. There's a debate on whether the two are actually one and the same. I don't think they are. Then you have this concept of there being archangels because Gabriel is said to be Michael is said to be an archangel, and Gabriel is said to, by himself, who says, I am the one who stands in the presence of the Lord. Right? So this is what these angels are, seven archangels. The best is to understand these as the seven archangels who stand in the presence of, the, of the, the Lord at all times. All right? The trumpets and the trumpet blasts are common throughout Scripture. What is signified by the trumpets? So remember, they're given seven trumpets. What is the purpose here of the trumpets? If you go through Scripture, what are some of the things that we see trumpets used for? Call to war. Call to war. Gathering. Gathering. The arrival of the presence of God. Mount Sinai, He came down and there were blasts of trumpets. What did Jesus say at the end time? And I will send out my angels at the blast of the trumpet. 1 Thessalonians, the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet blast. Okay. Trumpet blasts are associated with the return of Christ in many uh, apocalyptic passages. Are also, they're also associated with the presence of God as with Exodus 19. Um, in this context, however, it is, uh, it, is the very, it is this one that is of greatest significance. The trumpet seems to accompany any activity in the kingdom proclaiming God's presence with His people and at the same time judgment and destruction on the enemies. Remember Jericho. This is probably the best Old Testament reference for this. They marched around the city with what? But what else? The Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God with them for protection. And whenever God descended among His people, there was a trumpet blast. So what you see is God executing judgment on His enemies with the Ark of the Covenant or His presence with His people. This is what's being symbolized here. God is about to execute judgment, but He is with His people as per chapter 7. All right? All right. So let's get to this idea of a couple of, uh, of why I, uh, well, I don't really need to do that because I kind of already said it. Let's, let's do it anyway. So as we've said, the seven angels almost seem like an interruption to the narrative, right? Uh, the judgment, uh, they, they seem like, an interjection into the judgment scenario depicted in the previous verse and resumed in verses 3 and 5. It almost seems out of place. And then I saw there was a silence in heaven, and then I saw an angel. This would flow really well if you did it like this. There was silence in heaven, and then I saw an angel approach the altar and fill an incense bowl full of the incense, of the, uh, incense and the prayers of the saints and ignited by the fire of the coals of the altar, and then I saw him hurl it down, and then I saw seven angels. 
And then the first angel blew the trumpet. That almost makes better sense, right? That's not the way the text reads. The verse seems out of place. However, this is actually a literary style used in several other places, as we've said in the book, like that we've just mentioned of chapter 7. The placement of verse 2 before verse 3 and 5 allows the latter to act as a parenthetical transition that concludes the seals and introduces the trumpets. Okay, so there's a bridge because the two must interlock. And this vision of the trumpets before the execution of the full seal demonstrates that there is a connectedness. Okay? Um, in this interpretation, the depiction of the final judgment in verse 5 and that of the seal in 6 actually connect the two seals together as a depiction of the final judgment. Okay? Other commentators suggest that seal 7 consists of the silence in heaven. Verse 2 through 5 constitute and or the introduction of the content of the scroll. It's almost like an introduction. That seal 6, the seal 7 is silence and then verses 2 through 5 create an introduction to the blowing of the trumpets. And that'll work too. However, this makes the depiction of the final judgment in verse 5 either a preview of the final outcome of the trumpets or the inauguration of the judgment, both of which are textually awkward. All right? Because when you do that, you separate what happens with the the seventh seal and its connection to the sixth seal with regards to earthquakes and the, the end of all things. Uh, dispensationalists believe that the seventh seal appears empty but actually consists of the seven trumpets, which lends to their chronological interpretation. Whereas the seals constitute the character of the church age, the trumpets initiate the seven years of tribulation and the bowls actually bring about the end of the age. Okay, so they use this passage in dispensationalism. The best is the first. That verse 1 through 3, uh, verse 1 and 3 through 5 constitute the content of the seventh seal with the verse 2 being a connector between the seals and the trumpets whereby the continuity of revelation is, is demonstrated. All right. We'll get to the prayer of the saints because the, the, the real, let me just do this really fast so that you guys understand. What, what the key thing to the breaking of this seal is, is the prayer of the saints. This is the key and it ties it back to seal five. Remember they said, how long, O Lord? The seventh seal is broken and the angel approaches the altar that the, that the souls of the saints are under. And he has a bowl, which much incense is given to him. This is the ark, this is the altar of incense. And he takes coals from the altar, which actually, I won't get into the theology of that. Takes coals from the altar, mixes it with the incense and the prayers of the saints, and then hurls it to the earth. And what happens when he hurls it to the earth? The answer to the prayers of the saints. How long, O oh Lord? Right about now. So, the reason that this is important is because this ties Scripture, Revelation, all together. This makes the seal 5 important to the seal 7 and shows a recapitulation. Seal 5, they cried out, how long, O oh Lord, till judgment? Seal 7 says, seal both seal 6 and seal 7 says, now. Because I'm mixing your prayers. I, God, hear your prayers. Your prayers have come to me as a sweet aroma. I will vindicate you because I am a just and righteous God. You have been heard. I will mix your prayers and I will commence the answer to those prayers by executing judgment on those who have hated you for my name's sake. And I will show myself as righteous and holy. Okay? That's kind of it in a nutshell. And after God executes judgment, we see the same. What happens when, when this, the incense is thrown to earth? What happens? The final outcome of what happens is 
rumblings, lightning, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. God's judgment. What is seal six? Rumblings, lightning, peals of thunder, God's judgment. Okay? So the two six and seven seals must be seen together. They are broken together. There is a great cataclysm. Men run and hide, fall on me, but from the other perspective, this is what happens to those who are on the earth, but from what happens in heaven, the saints are vindicated. So six and seven must go together. Judgment upon the earth, vindication of the saints, all going back to chapter seven. I will keep you safe from all of these things by the seal, which goes back to seal five, which says that, how long, O Lord? Just a little while longer. All right? Any questions? Did I raise the head? Yo! Okay. Seal 2, 6, and 7. Go together. What, what is seal 2? Seal 5. Yeah, 5. Because I was like going, seal 2, that's the, uh, that's the uh, uh, red horse. No? <laughs> seal 5. Prayer of the saints. It's connected to, six and se it's connected to seal 7, and seal 7 is connected to seal 6. Seal 6 shows... The outcome of what happens in God's final judgment on the earth as men run to the mountains and they cry, fall on us. Who can stand? Chapter 7 shows who can stand. The great multitude standing before the, the throne. Seal 7 shows the vindication of the saints or is from the, the, the destruction, of the final judgment is shown from the vindication of the saints. Okay? And then we get into the seven judgment. Now we're into this content of the scroll. Okay? Yeah, it's a lot. But it's really cool. So, Father, we know that you hear our prayers. We know that our prayers arise before you because the incense that it is sensed with is the sacrifice of Jesus. And your son makes our prayers, though incomplete and often inappropriate sometimes, acceptable before the throne room of God. And we know that you hear us, and we know that you care, and we know that you are a righteous judge and uphold our cause. And we look forward to your returning. In Jesus' name, amen.